Many will turn from God during this time to a man that will be Satan's counterfeit Messiah. He's called the man of lawlessness. And so when the apostasy happens and the man of lawlessness is revealed, then and only then you know that you're in this time frame known as the day of the Lord. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Man of Sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 6 through 7 say, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Pastor Carl presents three main arguments in the history of the church that can be identified as the restrainer, which are human government, an angel, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. By the way, cults and false religions today are established in the same three false criteria. A spirit a message, or a letter. There's always some additional revelation. So Joseph Smith liked women, had 44 wives. I'll write a book that will justify my own evil. That's precisely what he did. There's always some vision, some dream, some additional revelation. And by the way, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, the early church fathers for the next 500 years, the writings and commentators done by Christians indicate that those gifts dried up when God finished his Bible. Why? Because they were no longer needed. You can't add to the scripture. You can't subtract to it. So God gave us a plumb line. So we go to the plumb line. And if it's an addition, don't do that. Revelation warns of that in the last chapter, and you certainly don't want to take away from what God has said, as many are doing today. And so they're justifying all kinds of evil, saying, well, we just misunderstood this. Someone was out in the hallway with me after the first service and said, you know, that man you witnessed to, he's really mad at you. Really, what's he really mad at you about? Because you said that the pastor of his Presbyterian church here in town, it was just fine for him to marry his son to his boyfriend. No, it's not. You can call it a marriage. It's not a marriage. Supreme Court of the United States can call it a marriage. It's not a marriage. Abraham Lincoln said to a young boy one day, if a dog, if a dog's tail is called a leg, how many legs does the dog have? He said, well, he has five legs. He said, no, he only has four legs. You can call a tail a leg, but it's not. It's a tail. And you can call two men or two women being married, but it's not a marriage, not in the eyes of Almighty God. And so there's all kinds of deception that is going on in our day. Let no one deceive you in any way. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. That's number one. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's number two. So he's countering their three false testimonies with three three true testimonies who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's number three. 
So let's start with the first reason as to why they could not possibly be in the day of the Lord. Look at verse three. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now, if you have the New American Standard, you will notice the words, it will not come, are in italics. In biblical theology, italics are not given for emphasis like we do in modern English. They are supplied by the translators for words that are not in the Greek text. And they do that because when you translate from one language into another language, sometimes in the Greek or the Hebrew, there's an implied meaning, and so they'll insert that. Or sometimes to be grammatically correct as you go from one language to another, to be linguistically correct, you supply those additional words. But nonetheless, while those words are not there, they are helpful in that they are thoughtful. For it will not come. And if you were a careful reader, you'd ask, well, what is the it? Well, the nearest antecedent is the day of the Lord. Please understand, he's not saying that the rapture cannot happen until the apostasy comes first, but the day of the Lord cannot happen until the apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the rapture happens, the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air, And when it happens, there'll be utter chaos on the world. Millions and millions of true born-again people will be gone. Cars will crash, planes will go down, machines will be left to function on their own, surgeries will stop. There'll be utter chaos across the planet. And so people are gonna look for leadership. We saw a smidgen of the need when COVID came along and people were willing to give up their freedoms across the planet so that we could have some sense of control and safety. And so many will turn from God during this time to a man that will be Satan's counterfeit Messiah. He's called the man of lawlessness. And so when the apostasy happens and the man of lawlessness is revealed, then and only then you know that you're in this time frame known as the day of the Lord. Now remember, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, but of that day of his second coming he's referring to. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, it may seem strange to us that Jesus, who could say, I and the Father are one, meaning we are equal, who is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, could say that he does not know the day of his second coming but you understand it when you read texts like Philippians 2 that speaks of the humiliation of Christ, not counting the glory that he shared in heaven, he became a man and humbled himself. And he was willing for a period of time to lay aside the free exercise of certain divine attributes. He chose to live in total dependence upon the spirit of God as God asks you to live in dependence upon him. And so understand, 2 Thessalonians 2 makes it clear that Jesus cannot come at his second coming until the apostasy and the man of lawlessness happens. Now, does Jesus, people ask, know today when his second coming? Of course he does. He is in his resurrection body, and he's sharing and expressing all of the same attributes that the Father and the Spirit of God has. So people say, well, now wait a minute. This phrase, no one knows the day or the hour, 
You studied with us last week, and Jesus affirmed it. John recorded the same numbers, that the coming tribulation period is seven years. Seems to me, Pastor, that when the tribulation period starts, and it's exactly seven years, 1260 days, three and a half years divided into two, 1260, 1260, three and a half, three and a half, times, times, half a times, time, times, half a times, seven years. Seems like we ought to be able to calculate the day or the hour. Now remember, we'll come to it. As Jesus unfolds for us the events that will lead up to his coming on the clouds in glory, he will say in Matthew 24, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So his second coming happens after the tribulation. Here's a chart to help you maybe to visualize it. You will often hear me say, and other pastors like myself, that after the church is caught up, there's seven plus years until the second coming of Christ. Why do we say seven plus years? Because again, if you were here last time and we studied Daniel 9, and I have four sermons just on that, we hit the highlights. The seven-year tribulation period does not start until the prince who is to come signs a peace treaty. So he has to come on the scene. You say, well, how much time will it take? We don't know. I assume it's rather quick, but we don't know. Could be days, weeks, or months, but this man will come on the scene, and he will sign a peace treaty, and it will begin the seven-year clock. Then immediately after the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus comes back. How immediately after? We don't know. Three days? Five days? We don't know. This may be a partial explanation. If you listen to my series on Daniel, Daniel 12, 12, he speaks of the 1,335 days. Not 1290, but the 1,335 days. There appears to be some brief period of time after the tribulation is over until the second coming. With that said, no one can calculate the day or the hour. Some people say, well, we may not know the day or the hour, but we know the year. Look, that's just stupidity. But with that said, we do know the time frame. We can know the season. Paul has already reminded us. Now, as to the times and the epics, 1 Thessalonians 5, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Christians, when they come to Bible prophecy, <clears throat> they tend to go to one of two extremes. They either throw out the baby with the bathwater where they say, you can't know anything. Uh, you know, no, nothing's happening. Everything's the same. That's what the mockers do. Everything's the same since the beginning of creation. We don't have any idea when Jesus is coming. Well, when the writer of the Hebrews admonishes us not to forsake our assembling together and our need to gather together all the more, as you see the day drawing near, there's an assumption that you can understand the seasons, the times, and the epics. So you've got two extremes, some who try to set dates, all these crazies, most of them unbelievers who end up discrediting Christians or they're trying to make money on books because this sells or you have those who are like blind guides, and they say, oh, we don't know anything. Now, understand, we can know something about the moral climate because Jesus likened it to the coming of the days of Noah and the days of Lot. 
He, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, speaks of this global empire, as does the prophet Daniel, as does the revelation. So globalism, with Israel back in the land, will be a mark of the final days before Jesus comes. And there will be apostasy. Now, we're going to look at a particular expression of apostasy this morning, the apostasy. But to have the apostasy, seeds of apostasy need to be sown. And that's what's happening in our day. Seeds of apostasy are being sown. Forget the fact that many evangelical pulpits are now compromised more and more. Just think about Americans and their attendance of church. Now, in 1978, 75% of Americans said they went to church. When you added the word weekly to it, 45% of the population said they went to church. Today, when you add the word weekly, whether it's Gallup, Bonner, Pew Research, or the Harvard Institute of Religion, when you add the word weekly, it drops to 20%. What does that mean? It means about 80% of Americans today are finding more, quote-unquote, fulfilling things to do than to be in church with the people of God. And by the way, these are pre-COVID numbers. And think about what's happened for the last five years between four to 7,000 churches between the year have permanently shut their doors. My wife and I, we were up visiting my mother just before she passed. We went up to Wells Beach, Maine, Five churches in the town. One had become a gift store that we went into. The other four, just the doors were shut. I asked a person why they should. Nobody comes anymore. They're just shut. Every year, churches are closing by the thousands. And half of the churches in America for the last five years have not added even one single new member. The climate is changing rapidly and drastically. And now there are approximately five million new people every year, especially in the millenniums on down, who call themselves a part of the religiously unaffiliated. Why is this? Because as we studied in Matthew 24, verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Cold hearts produce apathetic hearts. Now listen, the seeds are being sown for this coming great worldwide apostasy. And today, if you stand up in a pulpit and you stand for what's right, you're called intolerant or you're judgmental. If you call someone a sinner today, if you say your behavior is sinful, what's your problem? Why are you so intolerant? We're supposed to just love everyone, which is what that man's testimony was to me out in the hallway. We're supposed to just love everyone. And so today, the sin is not to commit the sin. The sin today is to call the sin a sin. That's where we have devolved to. And so people are no longer wicked. They're just weak. They're no longer evil. They're they're just ill. And we've redefined what sin is. 
And these are the seeds that are being sown for the coming apostasy. Do you think the average American is thinking, wow, man, God is judging us. He's going to judge us if we don't get right. It's the furthest thing from most people's minds. They think everything's fine. We're just going to go on living and buying our houses and marrying off our kids. Let no one deceive you, he says. In any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Now notice verse 4, because the Antichrist is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now this growing apostasy that we see, not just in America, but across the planet, is not yet the apostasy. You might want to circle the article. He's talking about a specific apostasy, the apostasy of all apostasies that's large-scale, wholesale, widespread, and it's connected to the coming of the Antichrist. And so Paul is saying, look, you've not missed the rapture. You're not in the day of the Lord, because if you were in the day of the Lord, you would have seen the apostasy, and you would have seen the Antichrist, because the rapture precedes. Our gathering together precedes these events. They precede the coming day of the Lord. Look, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. He's coming, and you need to be ready. Now, just know that when the apostasy comes, it will come through Satan's superman, the man of lawlessness, also called the son of perdition. By the way, there's only one other person in Scripture who's called the son of perdition, and that's Judas. And so Satan has always had a master plan. The overarching goal is to take as many people into eternal judgment where his end will be. But he also has always wanted worship. That's what made the devil the devil, right? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And he is going, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, to reach that goal of worship through his coming Antichrist. But understand, he comes in the place of Christ. There's a reason why Messiah, Messiah in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, it's the same thing like Carlos, Carl, same word, two different languages. There's a reason why he calls Antichrist, because he comes in the place of Christ, and he comes instead of Christ. He comes mimicking the Lord Jesus Christ. But the two are far apart. Jesus in the Revelation is called the Lamb. This man in the Revelation is called the Beast. Jesus came to heal. This man will come only to destroy. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Even so, the Antichrist will be the visible expression of the invisible devil. They're diametrically opposed. Now, you cannot say it would be a stretch, and I think a misrepresentation of Scripture to say that the Antichrist is Satan incarnate. But just like Judas, who is indwelt by Satan, this man, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, will be indwelt and empowered by the evil one himself. So that will be the climate for his coming. Consider, too, the clue to his character, the clue to his character. He does not want people to miss this, and there are a lot of confused people. Occasionally on the Bible line, someone has asked, do you think we're in the tribulation period? And of course, the answer is no. Well, listen, that's what the church at Thessalonica thought. Maybe we're in the tribulation period. Maybe the day of the Lord has come, because look at this gross persecution. They're killing us. So you need sound theology. 
The Antichrist is the one who opposes, verse 4, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Now, if you remember in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave us some insight as to the timing of this event. And so we looked at verses 4 through 14 in one message. And then the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, Jesus affirms what Daniel said. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, that's the temple, let the reader understand. And so it's right in the middle of this seven-year period that the Antichrist, as Paul describes, will go into this rebuilt temple and display himself as being God. And so Satan is going to try to mimic the Lord Jesus. He is going to claim to be God incarnate. He's going to say, I am God, worship me. And we'll see next time how that will be a red flag to Jewish people that he could not possibly be the true Messiah. Now here's a picture of the Temple Mount. I thought this was a great shot in the evening up from one side and this, as most of you know, is the single most disputed place of real estate on the planet. 35 acres. Right where the future temple will sit currently is the Dome of the Rock. But the Antichrist will come. I'm not sure how that dome will be removed. Maybe through the War of Gog and Magog that we studied early on in this series. But somehow, the Antichrist will allow the Jewish people to rebuild their temple. And all we know is that it needs to be in place and operating and functioning by the middle of the seven-year point. And so when the people of this world are left behind and chaos has come upon the planet, what do people want? They want order. Why were so many Americans willing, not after seven or eight weeks, but seven or eight months and two years, willing to give up their freedoms because of fear. They were afraid what COVID might do. There will be fear on the planet like the world has never seen. What do people want when they're fearful? They want security. And this man will come in the place of and instead of Christ, and he will present himself in the form of an unholy trinity. Think about it. Satan presents himself during the time of the tribulation, the dragon, as in the place of God the Father. The Antichrist will come in the place of God the Son, and the false prophet will function like the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in the subsequent weeks. He will point men to the Antichrist. Satan has always wanted to be worshipped, and so this text says he will exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship, taking his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is known as the abomination of desolation. All worship will be mediated through this particular man, Satan's superman, and he will have his wish. Now, people often ask, do you think he's alive? Do you think we can identify him? I suspect he may very well be alive, could be a world leader who's functioning today. Uh, some have said that Satan has had a man in the wings in every century waiting to step up to the plate. I don't believe that for one skinny minute. Satan, while he's not omniscient, he knows a lot of the Bible, as seen in Luke 4, Matthew 4. And so he knows 
that Israel has to be in the land. They have to be reestablished as a nation for the final events that will lead up to the second coming to happen. So that happened in May 14th, 1948. So I suspect that ever since that time, maybe he's had a man in the wings. Now, all kinds of speculations have been made throughout the centuries. In the first century, some concluded Nero was the Antichrist because he hated Christians and slaughtered them in masses. A few years later, in 81 AD, Domitian, the emperor, some thought he was the Antichrist because he demanded to be worshipped. In the Middle Ages, many thought Muhammad was the Antichrist because he desecrated and tore down all the Christian holy places. He repudiated the Lord Jesus. And if you didn't support Islam, you were persecuted. Later on, Emperor Frederick II, uh, Pope Gregory IX, uh, they found great satisfaction in calling each other the Antichrist. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and other reformers identified the Pope as the Antichrist. They were obviously wrong. A hundred years later, in, well, it was written in 1646, the final edition, but wasn't confirmed until 1647, the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it was voted on in the land of Scotland. And in Article 25, it says, there is no other head of the church than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could certainly say amen to that. In no sense can the Pope of Rome be the head of it. And we would say amen to that. Rather, and this was driven by a theology they had, Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of damnation who glorifies himself as opposed to Christ in everything related to God. They thought literally when they penned this confession that the Pope who was alive was indeed the Antichrist. In more contemporary times, Napoleon, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Khrushchev, Gorbachev, who just Gorbachev, who just died a few days ago, right? He had that big birthmark, and some Christians were saying, oh, that's the mark of the beast. And then uh, some said, well, it was Bill Clinton. He was the Antichrist, and Hillary was the false prophet. <laughs> and then Barack Obama, oh, he's the Antichrist. But for some strange reason, no one, I mean, no one believes Joe Biden is the Antichrist. I mean, nobody. Now, we do not know who the Antichrist is. And if you're able to identify him, that's not good because that means you were left behind. He won't be revealed until after our gathering together. Some have keyed off of his numerical value, 666. Some have even taken the Latin letters because Latin, like Greek, has numerical values. In Greek, alpha is one, beta is two, and so on. And they took the Greek letters to uh, the words written on the Pope's crown, and they came up with 666 with a little bit of manipulation. I think we would do well to learn from history to be a little more humble and cautious about trying to identify the Antichrist. Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Man of Sin. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 013. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. 
You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.